Hello and welcome to Takeover Tuesday. I'm your host, Dermot Buffini. And as you know, once a month I take over the Brian Buffini Show and I interview people that have been there and done that. People that have achieved superior performance in different areas of life. And my guest today is Mr. Greg Lucier, and he has certainly done that. And Greg has served and is widely recognized as one of the most successful CEOs in the country today. Former corporate officer at General Electric, and then moved on where he led Life Technologies from being a small biotech company with 1,500 employees and grew the company to over 12,000 employees with 50,000 products that were sold in over 80 countries. And in 2014... Thermo Fisher acquired the company for almost $14 billion. And today, Greg serves as the CEO of Nuvasiv, which is a San Diego-based company that's transforming the world of spinal surgery. He's a great leader, a great entrepreneur, and an even better person. And I'm glad he's here today to share with us his story and his wisdom. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Dermot, what a pleasure to be here. It's great to see you. Well, a little backstory here to give people some context of how we met. So, a few years ago... When i just taken over a CEO of a Feeney company that was very, very busy, I thought I could do the job of CEO, but I wasn't sure yet because I hadn't done it. And I got an opportunity to go play golf at the crossings. And a friend of mine, Gary Goss, a mutual friend, invited me. And I said, you know, I'm too busy. I'm a CEO now. I'm kind of a busy guy. And I don't know if I can be spending the time to take away from the business. And I thought, you know what? That's the very reason I should go. So I called my assistant, Chris, and I said, book the day I'm going. And I showed up. And thank God I did because I would have missed a great opportunity because you were also in that four ball and we hit it off and I didn't know who you were, which was shame on me, but I knew of the company and we had a great time and we connected. We laughed a lot. We had a good game of golf. And then I, after I knew who you were and what you'd accomplished, I had asked you, listen, I'm a new CEO and you have served as a publicly traded CEO for 11 years where the average lifespan of a publicly traded CEO is about 4.9 years. Mm. So obviously you were doing something right. And I asked you, would you mind meeting with me and just kind of give me some of your top tips? And you did. And you've been very generous with your time and it's helped shape my thinking and my time of how I've approached the CEO of Buffini Company. And I thought, as we met not so long ago for breakfast, what a great opportunity it would be for our listeners to get an opportunity to hear from you today. So thank you for being here and thanks for all you've done for me at Buffini Company. Well, Dermot, as I said, it's a real pleasure, but it's also an honor for me to be here. Most of the time when I meet new people, I never get a chance to meet them again, actually. So <laughs> I'm just uh, really delighted that you wanted to continue to hang around with me and build a friendship. And uh, no, but more seriously, I so respect what you're building here at Buffini and Company. Mm-hmm. I love the element of not only great kind of business mindset, but also just great leadership mindset coming together for success. Mm -hmm. So anything I can do to participate in your vision and your mission is uh, super exciting. Well, you are, and you're doing it right now. And and also, you just flew in from Austin this morning to be here. And I'm not paying you to be here. I just want to make sure you know that, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, good. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. I I got a free cup of coffee, so that's good. (laughs) That's how we do things here. But what I would love for folks today is just a little bit, you know, obviously we want to get into you know, how you do business and how you think about business and how you've been able to accomplish some of the things you've accomplished and some of the principles, because I know you're a big principle guy. And I have some very specific stuff that I've heard you talk about that I really am curious about learning more of. But I'd always like to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Norristown, Pennsylvania. And it was a community built around a big steel plant. Mm-hmm 
called Alan Wood Steele back in the 19th century. And ironically, my father in the 1960s was still in the steel business doing advertising work for what in that region was a very big industry around steel and foundries and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up uh, in a family of four children. I was the youngest and, and the one most neglected, quite frankly. Uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, from that... Uh, position in the family. Uh, I went on uh, later to go to Penn State University, the mm-hmm. university there, studied engineering, spent a little bit of working time, and then went on to Harvard Business School mm-hmm. to get an MBA, and then spent most of my career at the General Electric Company during mm-hmm. the real glory years of GE. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get into that in a sec, but let me ask you this. What yeah. sort of kid were you growing up? How would you describe yourself? Oh, I was a good kid. I mean, when you're the youngest of four and you have an older brother and, and two <laughs> dominant older sisters, uh, you stay in line. Yeah. But it was a really exciting, kind of fun place to grow up. Big Irish Catholic families. We were a family of four. Most of the families in our neighborhood had six to eight kids mm-hmm. and Lots of outdoor play, and you learned a lot about uh, social interaction in that type of community. Mm-hmm. Dad was in advertising. Mom was – what did mom do? Mom was a homemaker, and she made dinner every night. And my dad and my mom made sure everybody was at the dinner table at 6 mm-hmm. o'clock every evening having a dinner conversation. Very in good. fact, just as an aside, I, I often tell people when they ask me, like, how do you do this work-life balance thing? Mm-hmm. And as a guy who's probably spent the last 20 years, 70% of the mm-hmm. time on the road – you know, I tell them, if you're going to do one thing, raising a family, make sure you're home at least two nights a week, mm-hmm. having everyone sit at the dinner table mm-hmm. and have a great conversation with your children. Mm-hmm. Come in with the questions, come in with the topics, and make them engaged. If you look back on your childhood, I bet you it's what you remember. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Well, I think that's where birds of a feather. So straight out of college, you know, Penn State Engineering, onto Harvard Business. And then you got into GE. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the interesting thing about General Electric is that it, it seems to just be a hotbed for producing great leaders. You know, Jack Welch, legendary CEO, an icon. Jeff Immelt took over from him. Frank Blake, who was the general counsel, who ended up becoming the CEO of Home Depot and doing a great job there, but never actually even thought he could be a CEO. But, you know, that just shows uh, the testament to kind of the GE culture. What did you learn at GE that kind of was a good on-ramp to starting your career fundamentally? You have to roll the clock back. This was the 1990s. This was the era of General Electric, and it was the real acclaimed time for Jack Welch as the CEO in the world of business. And if you recall at that time, he had popularized the whole very Darwinian approach of <laughs> remove the twenty bottom 20%. Neutron Jack, right? Neutron Jack. And I'd have to say, Dermot, I got very good at that. Mm. And, you know, that's both a blessing and a curse. But GE at that time was a hyper-performance organization. Mm. So you learned at least what performance looked like. Mm. Maybe, as I'm alluding to, a little too much. Mm-hmm. The second thing you learned, though, was that every company, and GE had lots of different companies at the time, had its own rhythm and tempo. Mm. And if you could get that right, then you could do a lot of things well. And then the last was within that rhythm and tempo, how you could build awesome teams. Mm. You know, when people talk about culture, actually they probably miss the mark. Culture is actually teamwork. If you Mm. have a great team, you can be in a room with white walls and no pictures and actually feel awesome. Mm -hmm. So I'd say those were the three things, performance, culture, setting standards, Mm 
creating the right tempo to the organization so there was some level of predictability of how we do things around here, and then creating the essence and ambiance of how people work together in mm-hmm. a very productive way. Mm. Yeah. You know, the thing about it is having a culture that you do have the team spirit and, well, let's go for it, let's work together, combining it the fact that, just to kind of elaborate on the point a little bit, which is the bottom 20%. Bottom 20 at the time. Which was, Jack's deal was that if you don't find the bottom 20%, I will. There was and a lot of pressure to so do so. So there was pressure to do that. But then you've got to be careful with that because if you want to breed teamwork, you've got to be kind of the coach who encourages. But the other side of it is the accountability to go, you can't be here anymore. And Jack's approach kind of was, well, you're not caring for people if they're not succeeding and if they're failing. You're setting them up for failure. So it makes a lot of sense. And it was justified pragmatically, but it's a real difficult balance, right? Well, I'll tell you an interesting story of how it kind of backfired on my own career. Mm. So I ultimately, as the story will play out, left GE Mm -hmm. many years later and took over that biotech company you referenced earlier. And of course, I only brought what I knew, which was the GE way. Mm -hmm. And this was a very science-oriented company. It was Mm -hmm. incredibly collaborative. And I'll Mm -hmm. talk about that in a moment. But when you then instill, or I should say put on, that type of Darwinian bottom 20% has to go into a culture like that, it is a recipe for paralysis, let alone people fleeing, and then certainly no collaboration. And so it shuts them down a little shuts bit. Shuts them down. Yeah. And I learned a really important lesson that may be uh, so obvious, but actually people make the mistake all the time. And that is that what works there doesn't work here. <laughs> and the problem you have in careers is that you get these pattern recognition biases. Oh, I've seen that before, so this is what it's going to be. And there's a fine line between wisdom mm-hmm. And kind of foolishness. And this was a great example of where I had to learn hmm. that uh, that was not wisdom, applying what worked in GE. But the other side, the humility to transform it, to go, that culture doesn't translate to this culture because it's a different animal. That's right. But still, you know, when you're the leader, you have to remember you own these things. Mm-hmm. And so what I had to do there was I had to be the tip of the spear for the change, to say in a very public way in the company, repetitively, I made a mistake. Mm. I have learned and show real authentic humility that mm. the change starts with me, actually. It's really powerful. And it, people can follow that because they can trust it. How long did it take you to kind of realize it? And then how long did it take you for people to believe it? Yeah, good question. Well, you know, it's funny. We had actually pretty good success with that Darwinian method for about two years because, mm. you know, it's like anything. You can run the engine at the high RPMs, mm-hmm. but eventually the engine starts mm-hmm. to develop a problem. And mm-hmm. so for us, that happened at the two-year mark. And we just started to see a breakdown in performance. We started to see retention issues kind of crop up. And then you could begin to see that the morale was not where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had to hit the pause button and to say, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is an important thing I'd also add in. There's this concept of professional distance. Mm. The distance that a leader sets between him or herself and where the implementation of these ideas or plans takes place. Mm-hmm. And if that distance is too far, you're going to have a translation error. Mm-hmm. And so great leaders do two things. They shorten that professional distance And they cross it as well by going out there into the field, into the people, and really understanding what they're saying, Mm. what it actually got translated into, 
and then taking it back in terms of kind of understanding. And so that's what I had to go do. That's tremendous because I think that shows a, a leader who wants to learn and be curious about other people's perspective. And then also not just kind of like, this is what we're doing because I said so, that you go to the front lines and learn from them and say, where are we missing it? Where am I missing it? And then ultimately you can create a vision from that place that they can buy into because they infected it. You got it. I mean, but look, I think visions are relatively easy to come up with. Mm -hmm. Achieving them is obviously where the the hard work comes. Absolutely. And so this type of concept of getting out there and understanding who has to implement and will it even be possible is essential. Well, you know, the other thing is, and, and a lot of people listening to this podcast today are either people who have a job and report to a leader or aspiring leaders, or they're people who own businesses and they are leaders and they wanted to grow in their leadership. What I hear and what you're saying as well is that the importance of you got that job because you were successful, but you adapted. You didn't stay in that place. You didn't create a religion. You didn't create a dogma where it's like, this is how it has to be. And to be flexible, to be led by those people you lead. Mm-hmm. I just hear that as a big, big point that I hope people on the podcast to stay, stay in that place of being curious and not being afraid to say, I made a mistake. We need to correct. And by the way, part of it is I need to learn from you. And close that gap between leading from the tower or leading from the trenches and combining that place. Is that... Right on. Okay. Now, let me ask you this, because I, I know today you're in the spinal technology industry with Nevasive, and that's a, it seems like it's going great guns for you. When I met you, you had taken the company from where it was to being sold for $14 billion. And you were kind of wondering, what am I going to do with the next stage of my life? Which was really interesting to meet you at that time when I was going through a career change you're looking at what you're thinking about doing and all sorts of interesting stuff you're considering what made you get kind of back in the saddle as CEO and chairman of Nuvasiv and what attracted you to that Dermot it was all accidental actually so as you said I had sold life technologies it was the right answer for that company at the time to combine with Thermo Fisher to now create the world's largest science company and I had a plan to become a private investor through my own family office and then serve on interesting public boards mm-hmm. just to keep my mind stimulated sure. and engaged in the world of business. And Nuvasive was one of the public companies whose board I joined. And regrettably, I um, had to step in as the chairman and CEO because the previous person uh, ultimately just had to go. Mm-hmm. One of those situations. And when I stepped into it, I saw a very young company, Mm -hmm. a company that had had a lot of success, in some ways accidental, Mm -hmm. but was at that point where it wasn't big enough that it had all the process and inherent know-how to keep going, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't tiny either Mm -hmm. that it could just keep doing what it was doing. So what I'm hearing in that is a little bit of like it fired up the entrepreneurial juices because you're like, it has so much potential. It did, but it also fired up the stewardship, the Mm. mentorship kind of principles and ideas Mm. in me. I wanted to help out the company, Mm -hmm. get it from A to B, and then pass it on to the next generation of leaders that will take it forward to what I think Mm. will ultimately be a multi-billion dollar Mm. enterprise. I have no doubt with you at the helm, but I want to tap into something that you said there because the fun part of the mentorship, the advancement of people, I think that's something that I've enjoyed and experienced with you, just exchanging ideas, and you've been willing to share that very generously. Life Technologies. Let's just talk about this for a second because I want to go somewhere with it. But what type of company was Life Technologies that you could explain to people in a way they could understand? Life Technologies at the time was the largest life sciences company in the world. You may ask, what is life sciences? So life sciences is where you are using 
tools, techniques, know-how to interrogate the very molecular basis of how life works. Mm. And we created all of those tools, technologies, and know-how that researchers in pharmaceutical companies and research labs and FBI doing DNA forensics could use to figure out their work and either develop a new drug, develop a new vaccine, find a criminal using DNA. Life Technologies was behind all of those different endeavors. Mm -hmm. Now, when you started, this technology cost billions of dollars. And by the time you left, you'd whittle it down to where it was affordable for $1,000? One of the greatest revolutions in the last 15 years of our world has been genetic sequencing. Hmm. And it's just interestingly and ironic that uh, the two main companies that developed it were based right here in San Diego, hmm. Illumina Corporation and Life Technologies. Hmm. But uh, Life Technologies was the company that decoded the first human genome with the federal government for $3 billion. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of 10 plus years, we now are able to genetically sequence a human for in and around $1,000. And it's hmm. now starting to have major impact on the, hopefully, the diagnosis and cure for disease. Mm-hmm. So, and again, put this down into the brass tacks, layman's terms. This is the ability for you to do a scan of yourself to see what your, what your predisposition is to ailments in the future. It's the software code of a human. Mm-hmm. It's the beginning of everything else that happens downstream in your body. It's the genome that determines uh, your skin color, your hair color, how fast you're going to be. Mm. What happens when you're at age 50, it, mm-hmm. it is the life code. It's mm-hmm. where everything starts. It's got to be a great responsibility, too, because you could probably manipulate things or change or alter populations because you can be so advanced in... Well, now you're touching on like the, the issue complex. of the 21st century, which is the first step was decoding the human genome. The next step that's actually underway is editing the human genome. And then the last step will be actually writing the human genome, which... Gets us into lots of very interesting ethical, moral mm-hmm. conversations about what is life. Mm, crazy. But on a practical term, you also want to experience the product yourself. So could you describe that a little bit? You were one of the first people to kind of go through it. And what did you learn? So in 2008, there were maybe 20 people in the world that had been genetically sequenced. Just to give you some comparison, it's, it's well above a million now. So this is mm. exponential growth mm-hmm. we're starting to see. And I have no doubt in my mind that in a few years' time, this will be as uh, ubiquitous as uh, an X-ray scan. But at the time in 2008, we were developing technology, and I wanted them to use me as the guinea pig to find out where my genetic mutations were. Mm -hmm. It also happened to correspond, though, with my mother contracting a version of Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And because it was a great mystery of what was afflicting her, I asked her if she wanted to be part of my own kind of guinea pig experiment, and she was all for it. Mm -hmm. So we genetically sequenced my mother. We genetically sequenced myself, and uh, we were able to understand what was obviously in her genome, and then I could also see what she had passed down to me in terms of what was in my genome, and we could, at the time, make some inferences of what our daughter, and I'll talk about that in a moment, was going to inherit from me as well. Mm. So it was incredibly interesting, and in my own case, I found out that at least on one of the strands of my DNA, I clearly have the predisposition for Parkinson's disease. Mm. The interesting thing is that you only typically get disease if you have it on both sides of your your Mm. DNA strand, so Mm. what you inherit from your father. Mm. My father at the time wanted nothing to do with it, (laughs) and so um, we'll never know because I actually didn't want to know myself Mm. what my future is in terms of Parkinson's disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you take care of yourself. I know that. Mm -hmm. You're in great shape. 
You look after yourself, and I know you'll be doing everything you can to stay healthy. You got it. Every day is going to be a gift. All right, so I said earlier, this is a Buffini thing. I yep. mentioned something earlier, left it alone, now I'm picking it up back up again because it's going to go to mentoring and people development because I know that's a big GE principle. It's something that you enjoy doing. So you take the same formula or approach or that analogy of what you described from the standpoint of your DNA. As a leader, I would say at this stage of your career, you could put somebody through the Greg Lucere technology and probably based on observing them leading, working, their work ethic, their relational abilities, how they think, what skills they have, I'm fairly sure you could probably predict their future for them. So if you were going to describe to me the attributes or the DNA of somebody who's going to do well as a leader, maybe as a student, maybe as a business owner, what are some of the components that you look for where you go, that kid, that person, that leader has potential because they have those attributes? What would be some of those things? I know it's a big question. A couple answers come to mind. The first is that the individual, and I hate to be assessing here, but the individual has to have good IQ. They don't have to be Mensa, but they have to have good IQ because the world is becoming so darn complex. And the ability to understand abstract concepts is going to be critically important. The Mm. second thing they have to have, though, we'll talk about it some more, is EQ. Mm. Beyond those two cues, though, the next thing they have to have had is a good childhood. Now you say, what? Or at least a childhood that created some confidence. Mm. Jack Welch used to say, you can't do anything for somebody who doesn't have some Mm self-confidence. And it was absolutely true. Because if they don't have self-confidence, forever behind their eyes, there is this filter of insecurity. Mm. And it warps everything. Mm. So you look for self-confidence. It doesn't have to be arrogance. In fact, obviously it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But it has to be that the person has a good sense of themselves. And they know they're going to, quote-unquote, do just fine. Mm-hmm. The next thing they have to have, though, is, and I pick it up on the EQ, because not all EQ is EQ, but they have to have an important element of EQ, and that is reflection. Mm-hmm. One of the great interview questions I always ask people is, tell me about your biggest failure. Mm-hmm. Just you know, lay it on the line. Mm-hmm. And I'm blown away by how people are so unreflective at times, mm-hmm. but how others are. And when they are, boy, oh, boy, it just tells you they are in a learning mode, and they're in a forever learning mode. Mm. And we should always be, obviously, mm-hmm. in a learning mode. The last thing that I look for, and it's hard to pick up, but you have to pick it up by just various experiences along the way, is they don't quit. Mm. So the perseverance gene. And it's easy to say that. But I'm telling you, you don't quit. Mm. How many times, Dermot, in your career have you wanted to just say enough? Lots. And if somebody said to me today, don't quit today, quit tomorrow, and say that every day. Exactly. I'm going to quit tomorrow. Right. And then show up and say, I'm going to quit tomorrow. And then eventually, you don't quit. Right. Yeah, that's great. You know, and to me, that's the mind of a leader. Mm. You see, oh, well, like some people say, well, leaders are only CEOs. No, no. Leaders actually have the don't quit mentality because Mm -hmm. they believe they matter Mm -hmm. and if they kind of pull Mm -hmm. themselves out it's not going to work and there's a lot of people around them that will be impacted and affected Mm -hmm. and to me that's that's what i'm mostly after is not only the perseverance gene Mm -hmm. but the kind of responsibility that goes with Mm -hmm. that yeah well you said a lot there it's great stuff i'm writing it down here and so i think part of what i hear you say as well is when you say don't quit that if you're mentoring somebody you also have to have that approach to that person 
Clearly. Where you might be about to quit on yourself, but I see enough that I'm not going to quit on you. Until such time as it's like I'm not willing to go any further. I've got a lot to dive in here. So first of all, start with self-awareness. So you started with good IQ, and then I'm thankful you moved to EQ because I made the list. (laughs) And then a good childhood and that sort of stuff. That's great. But let me ask you this. The self-awareness piece is why is that important? Is it going to give you a baseline? And how do you do it? So as you were alluding to, self-awareness is this ability to get out of your body, Mm -hmm. look at yourself Play the tape back on yourself, mm. critique yourself, and make yourself better. The reflection piece you're talking That's about. That's what I meant by it. reflection. Okay. I'm tuning in now. All Talk right. EQ first. Oh, I understand. <laughs> That's great. So what do we do? I don't have a good childhood. I got the IQ. I got the <laughs> EQ. I don't have a good childhood. I don't have the confidence. Yeah. How can we find it? How can we get it? How can we nurture it? How can you build it? Boy, I tell you, you've asked a, almost a societal question now is – you know, look, our goal, I'm sorry to be a little bit philosophical here, but our goal as elders, and by the way, you are elders now because I see the hair, <laughs> is to create a world where kids coming up kind of leave their house and they've got a good launch. And the good launch was, if nothing else, a good sense of self-confidence. Mm. That's what sports help do. That's mm-hmm. what good academics help do. Mm-hmm. That's what that dinner table conversation can help produce. Mm-hmm. But if parents aren't thinking about that one thing to launch their kids, mm-hmm. they've missed it all. Yeah. And fortunately, and I'll kind of riff on this, but you know, going to get the trophy, going to be the number one starter, yeah, I can see how that's a proxy for self-confidence, mm-hmm. but it's also a proxy for arrogance and mm-hmm. emptiness. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we got to be careful and maybe sometimes we miss the prize, which is the real prize is mm-hmm. self-confidence. Yeah, which I guess, you know, there's a couple of things that come to mind when you say that. You know, there's a friend of mine used to say, a lot of times, you know, a man or woman becomes successful in their life because of the adversity and the suffering that they overcame in their life. And then the mistake that they make is they try to remove it from their children's lives. Right. You've done very, very well. And I don't want to be crass here, but you've been one of the top paid CEOs in the country for a number of years, which if I'd have known earlier, I would have been friends with you earlier and I would have bought a lot less breakfast. (laughs) Okay, so you've keeping that to yourself. But ultimately is you've been very successful and you have three children and they all seem like they're doing very well and they're accomplished. How do you allow them to grow their confidence when you can make it all go away? I mean, you can fill in the gap by providing for them. How did you do that for your own children? A little vignette that's very real time. So I'll just give you an answer of how we've done it with each of the three, but I'll use my youngest daughter as the example. So last Friday, she graduated from Auburn University. Mm, Congratulations. Thank you. And she is an industrial design graduate, which is a fascinating thing because the world is now wanting everything to be really well designed. Mm-hmm. But finding a job is not easy, right? Mm-hmm. This is an area of business where reputation precedes, and you know it's hard to get that reputation, a little bit of a chicken and the egg issue. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what we try to do with our kids, in her case, is give her a little bit of money, not a lot, mm-hmm. just to launch her so she can be a bit independent. Mm-hmm. But second, help her achieve the outcome she wants on her own. Mm -hmm. So today, now Tuesday, she just called me on my way over here to your podcast, and she got a job. Congratulations. Thank you. And here was the first thing she said. And guess what, Dad? As I look back on it all, I did it all myself. Mm. And I was like, you know what? I'm proud of you, girl. That's great. And it just shows you 
at least what her mother did, I mm-hmm. think, which was raise an independent young lady. Well, and also, which is fantastic, and you're married 26 years or so? 30 years. 30 years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, when I started, you were only 26 <laughs> years right, married. Right. Yeah, it says a lot, because I know you could pick up the phone. I could, and you I've could. often been tempted to, mm-hmm. and I would if I was asked, but I think it's a nice and it's uh, good for them that I haven't had to do it very often. Mm-hmm. That's great. Have you ever lost your confidence or had it shaken? And if so, what did you do? I did. I fell out of favor at one point in my career in GE. Mm-hmm. I was on the outside looking in. I went to my boss at the time, Jeff Immelt, mm-hmm. and he relayed to me that he had had a similar falling out with uh, Jack Welch. And he said the best decision he ever made was to not walk out the back door, Mm. but kind of tough it out, learn from it, and figure out how to regain the step, and then come back. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what I did. And I often tell people, you know, notwithstanding the don't quit, at some point transitions are important in your career. Mm -hmm. But always make sure you walk out the front door. Mm. And that means you walk out with your head held high, that you achieved what you wanted to achieve, that the reputation you wanted to impart is there, and there was no surprise. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is the mark of a good career is that you're always walking out the proverbial Mm -hmm. front door. Yeah, or a lot of times you see folks as well who disappear inside of companies Mm. or leaders who let people disappear because, like, they're not great, but, you know, it will do with them because it's easier to keep them than to find somebody and train somebody. But I hear what you're saying is if we all took personal responsibility, then we have power. If we have confidence, it means we can receive criticism and we can deal with failure. And I just think that's a that's a powerful thing. And also, you know, the other side of it is, I think, for me, when I took over CEO, I thought I could do it. But I didn't know. But what I think I've learned to do is, and this is part of kind of the essence of this podcast, is asking people who you admire. You look and go, could you help me? And I think in the meantime, one of the things you said to me early on, I'm curious about this, is like when somebody doesn't have their full confidence, that maybe through mentoring and a good word, you can give them, you can make up that deficit. And I remember when we met for lunch, you asked a bunch of questions. You got our business very quickly, almost to the revenue dollar, which I went, okay, hold on, that's a bit scary. You kicked out a bunch of ideas, but you did say this to me. You innately have what you need to be a great leader of this company and that you have magic that you need to harness on this. And I was like, great, what is that? Man, I've sold him a bill of goods. But I appreciated that just from a mentoring standpoint. And when you're talking about confidence is the fact that when somebody might not have their full confidence, that you have the ability to speak into their lives and make up that deficit. So thank you for that. And do you think that is something that we should look for the opportunities to do? Is that, that, that I read that the right way? Oh, yeah, I think you read that the right way and you are a student of this, I think the psychiatrist saying is that it takes five compliments to overcome one Mm -hmm. criticism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the problem sometimes is if you're in a high-performance area, Mm -hmm. business, sports, whatever, you tend to be critical because you want to be better. But you've got to figure out a more positive way to do it. And so now to your question... When you see somebody who has all the skills, but maybe just a little missing in the confidence for whatever reason, they're new on the job in like mm-hmm. your case, mm-hmm. I think you have to be incredibly encouraging, motivating, and positive because 
you got to get them past just the hump. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's certainly how I've tried to lead with people whenever I can. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, let me ask you this. You know, as I said earlier in the show, almost five years, just under five years, is the average life expectancy of a publicly traded CEO. I'm the CEO of a private company. I'm not sure if I could be the CEO of a publicly traded company because it seems a little unreasonable in a lot of ways. In some ways, it feels like you're constantly challenged to do the right thing. You have to fight to do the right thing because you're trying to please shareholders who might not have realistic expectations. They're like, I don't want to wait till the third quarter. I want it now. So it's a lot of pressure. You've done it for a long time. And you've done it, Life Technology, you sold the company. So you didn't get ousted. You didn't move on. You, you moved the company on. How have you taken care of your own emotional and physical health? What routines do you have or things that you do to ensure that you don't implode, you know, implode your family? What are the things that you could recommend? Well, public or private, the world we live in today is so dynamic, so fast-paced that you can let your work completely consume you. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just critically important that you maintain good health. And so every morning I get up early, I uh, work out, and I find that centers me quite well for the balance of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of uh, dealing with the pressures that come at you, You know, I often have a statement that I just keep repeating to myself, and I say this with just tongue-in-cheek, no one's going to die around here. Mm. It's just not that big of a deal, Mm. and you got to keep it all in perspective. Mm -hmm. And then it comes back to this comment we were having earlier about self-confidence, which is, you know, in my center line, I know I'm a pretty good person. Mm. I know I make pretty good decisions. They're not perfect, Mm -hmm. but I also know that I give it my all, too. Mm. And failure might just happen. But no one's going to die. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to be Greg, and it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to have that grounding effect, both physically and mentally, in this crazy world we live in today. That's fantastic, because you've got a realistic perspective. This is not life and death. Right. Although it can feel like that sometimes. Oh, it certainly can. And what I like about that is sometimes I often think that we live our lives in this pressure cooker. You know, it's kind of like... It's all happening here. Kids have to get a baseball. I got to get to here. I got to get my hair done. I got to get my nails done. This is just my week. You know, you live in this place where it's just kind of like you're on the spin cycle. And to hit pause and say, I need to get above this and have a different perspective and see what really matters and be intentional. What I hear also in that is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Like high schoolers, sometimes they ask me, hey, uh, Mr. Lucier, what should I do? I, You know, I tell them. The one thing you should do is you should read a lot. Mm. And and for two reasons. One is it's going to make you more interesting. (laughs) And when you meet somebody, you are going to be an interesting conversationalist. Mm. The second thing, though, is it gets to this very thing we were talking about. When you read stories about other people, you realize that Mm -hmm. actually we all live the same life. It's just (laughs) in a different body. Mm. That's good stuff. Well... This is good stuff, Mr. Lassier. This might be a four-part podcast. It might never leave. (laughs) Hey, listen, we do a little fun thing, which is we do some rapid-fire questions. Are you up for that? I am up for that. All right. Here we go. So let me ask you this. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I think it would be the one I said earlier about this euphemism of don't ever walk out the back door. Mm -hmm. Walk out the front door of life. Mm -hmm. And use that in every way, shape possible. And that's what I try to do. When I meet you, when I come in here, I want to be able to say that I walked out the front door, that people remembered me, I mm-hmm. remembered them, mm-hmm. and our mutual presence was meaningful. That's great. Good experience. Leave a good, a good scent. Mm-hmm. 
What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? I wish I could play the piano.、Mm. It's the one thing I drilled into my kids is they were going to learn how to play a musical instrument, and、uh, they're pretty darn good at each in their own way of one of them. And、uh, it is there ahead of me yet because I am going to become you're going to do one、it? of these things. Are you going to do it? It's the piano. Yep. All right, I love it. That's great. I'll be asking you about that one in the、yeah. future. What book has been most instrumental in your life? Great book, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt.、Mm. One of the great. It's the middle book in the trilogy, and this was an amazing human being that had a great impact on our country. Just tell me a little bit more. Oh goodness gracious! His wife had died. This is the middle part of his young life. His wife had died. He had gotten sick,、mm. and he decided to quit everything and move to North Dakota.、Mm. And it's the story of the middle part of his life of how he became a, a kind of a cowboy out west,、mm -hmm. and then emerged from that funk、mm -hmm. where he had lost his、mm -hmm. self confidence、mm -hmm. to come back and ultimately rise to the presidency of the United States. It is a great story. I love it. I'm gonna have to take a look at that one. That's good. You're in the in the Maz driving up five. Beautiful morning. What songs on the radio? What's your favorite song? It's getting you pumped up. Well, I wish I could give you one, but I tell you, one of the great joys of having、uh, kids in their twenties is they're totally into music,、mm -hmm. and so I have become a real aficionado of modern music now. <laughs> and so I, I'm like, this is crazy. I'm into Post Malone right now. <laughs> I love him. Yeah, he's great. My daughter sings a song with her too. Yeah, yeah that's great. I like it.、Yeah. That's hip. And what about movies? What movie do you love to watch, or one that's kind of like you watch every year, or one you watch over and over? Is there one? Unarguably. Because it's the best movie ever, won all the Academy Awards one year, and it's because I'm from Philadelphia. Rocky, ah,、oh, I love it. Well, listen, this has been great. You know, I heard on a podcast one time. It was、uh, actually Frank Blake, and he had said he had spent some time with Jack Welch and Jack Neutron Jack, who was kind of like highly pragmatic. Find me the twenty percent, hold them accountable, get rid of them, get them in. He said, "What single leadership quality did he think was most important?" Hmm. And he said his answer really shocked him, especially coming from Jack, because he was such an uber pragmatist and competitive guy. And he said the number one thing I think that is important for leaders is generosity, because if you're generous, it means you do want to see other people succeed.、Mm -hmm. You're generous with your time. You're generous with your experience. You're generous with your life and your wisdom. And I was thinking about this morning because you have that.、Hmm. And I think it's a great attribute, and you've been extremely generous with me over the last four years, and I really do appreciate that. And I think you've been very generous with our audience today. So thank you for being such a cool guy. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. What、God、an honor、you. to be here. All right,、Have、thanks a million,、day. Greg. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show, and if you liked what you heard, there's plenty more where that came from. So be sure to hit the subscribe button and tune in each week, so we can explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success together. And as I finish here today, I'll leave you with a little Irish blessing that my grandfather always said: "May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of His hand. See you next time."